Paul O'Hanlon, A Driving Force for Accessibility by Jason Irwin When he's not training Port Authority bus drivers to be more receptive to and responsible for the needs of passengers with mobility issues, you might find Paul O'Hanlon at home in front of his TV watching a favorite film by Alfred Hitchcock or Werner Herzog. From reading his resume, however, it's hard to imagine Paul relaxing. We spoke via Zoom in mid-February 2021. At the time, the COVID-19 pandemic had claimed nearly 483,000 lives in the United States, and much of the world had been in lockdown since the previous spring. Then pandemic and its rippling social and economic effects were no doubt worse for those with disabilities, the sick and the elderly. Paul has lived with a slow-progressing neuromuscular disease in the MD, muscular dystrophy, family that causes progressive weakness and loss of muscle mass. Having a disability has not stopped Paul from living a full life. He'd resisted using a wheelchair for a long time, but once he made the decision, he realized he'd been accepting too much unnecessary struggle in his life. He also resisted a power chair, but now, if you're not careful, he'll talk your ear off about its advantages. Paul originally enrolled at the University of Pittsburgh to study philosophy, but when he didn't see any help-wanted signs for philosophers, this working-class kid switched to law. Paul's parents had separated when he was five or six. His father wasn't around much, and his mother worked as a switchboard operator for a local laundry service and later married a mechanic who became a city police officer. After graduating from Pitt's School of Law in 1979, Paul worked as a poverty advocate. Then one day, Paul was downtown with a friend when he saw a Port Authority bust with a handicapped logo go by. He was determined to board the next bus, but his friend told him not to bother. They won't even stop for you, he said. At the time, there weren't many routes that had buses equipped to take passengers in wheelchairs. This was a defining moment, and since then, Paul O'Hanlon has been a driving force for accessibility in Allegheny County. As a disability rights attorney, as well as a co-chair of the City of Pittsburgh, Allegheny County's Task Force on Disabilities, he's worked tirelessly to improve the lives of the disabled. Greater accessibility not only benefits the disabled, it benefits us all. In our society, we act as if having a disability is something wrong, Paul explained. But when it happens to an elderly person, we say it's something natural. We say that's just how it is. We talked about our conflicted relationship with aging, pointing out how, when we age, we acquire disabilities or, rather, lose abilities we once had. While we encourage young people with mobility issues to get a powered wheelchair, we tell the elderly to use a walker. This attitude, Paul said, creates unnecessary suffering. Maybe it's a result of our fear of getting old and dying, a defense mechanism to ward off the inevitable. Though I don't use a wheelchair, I'm familiar with mobility issues. I was born with various birth defects and didn't find out until age 40 that I had something known as Vodder syndrome. 
a cluster of conditions in which three or more body parts are affected. Among them, my left leg was shorter than my right, my left knee bent outward like an elbow, I had a dislocated hip and a club foot that looked like a chunk of coral. I had to wear a brace made from steel and leather with a cork lift, and my parents had to buy my shoes, a regular size for my right foot and a baby size for my left, at a special store in Buffalo, New York, 45 miles away from my home in Dunkirk. When I was 16, I made the decision to have my club foot amputated and my knee turned around so it would bend normally. I've worn a prosthetic leg ever since. Still, I've been ignorant of the plight of others with disabilities. I had no knowledge of the struggles to gain accessibility and basic equality so many disabled faced. Because I didn't use a wheelchair and, due to my youth, had not yet faced discrimination, the significance of the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, didn't register with me. Signed into law in 1990 by then-President George H.W. Bush, the ADA is a civil rights law that guarantees to individuals with disabilities protections similar to those provided on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, age, and religion. It prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in all areas of public life, including employment, education, transportation, and in all public and private spaces that are open to the public. It wasn't until my 20s that I realized just how inaccessible the world could be. My friend Joni Burns, who had MD, muscular dystrophy, started petitioning local businesses in Dunkirk to make their buildings wheelchair accessible. The local library told her to call ahead and they'd bring the book she wanted out to her car. The art gallery and BJ's, our favorite bar, claimed they didn't have the money to make improvements. The post office argued that a ramp would spoil the historic look of the building. Even though, three miles away in the next town, a post office with the same design had had a wheelchair ramp in place for years. Sadly, Joni died without ever seeing the results of her campaign. For most Americans, the daily commute to work can be described as drudgery. Driving on congested streets and highways or sitting on crowded buses or subway cars where it's difficult to even turn your head. Yet, can the average able-bodied commuter imagine what that same experience would be like if they were blind or deaf, had cognitive or emotional disabilities, or if they were in a wheelchair? After Paul O'Hanlon saw that bus with a handicapped logo go by, he was not only determined to board a bus, but was also determined to help other disabled people board them. It took five years of constant advocacy, but he and people like the late Lucy Sproul, the city of Pittsburgh's first ADA coordinator, helped the Port Authority of Allegheny County become the first major bus provider in the country to be ADA compliant. Prior to that, there was Magic Carpet Transportation Service, a consumer-operated nonprofit transit service established by Holly Dick and her husband, the late Paul Dick, in 1963. Both of the founders identified as disabled. 
Magic Carpet ran until 1979 when Access, a coordinated shared ride paratransit service funded by a public-private partnership, was established. Access provides door-to-door, reservation-only transportation service for thousands of Allegheny County residents with disabilities who are unable to drive or use buses or taxis. Buses in Pittsburgh weren't accessible to people who used wheelchairs until I was almost 40 years old, Paul said. When I started riding, I felt like I'd discovered a Pittsburgh neighborhood that I never knew existed. In the beginning, Paul mostly took the bus to and from work downtown. Nevertheless, it was a radical transformation, something unthinkable during his college years. He still remembers, with an almost childlike excitement, a bus trip he took 15 years ago from his home at the time in Squirrel Hill to the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank in Duquesne. It was my first spontaneous attempt to use the bus to travel to a place I'd never been to before, Paul said. There were concerns about access to the building itself, access to the bathroom, and whether the sidewalks would have curb cuts. There were also concerns he might end up stranded, that the trip would turn into a nightmare. Travelers without disabilities rarely, if ever, worry about these things. In the end, Paul's journey was a success. The overarching experience was that it was an adventure, an empowering experience, Paul said. I probably said something to myself like, shit, I can do this now. So how does Pittsburgh rank compared to other metropolitan areas? We're more accessible than Philly, but lag behind Seattle, Paul said. In Florida, bus drivers will not move until every passenger is seated. This is amazing, considering that some Pittsburgh bus drivers step on the gas before you have time to even tap your Connect card. As a commuter myself, who depends on the bus to get to and from work each day, I understand the difficulty in riding a bus. Even with designated seating, it is often a challenge finding a seat, especially when it's packed. In my experience, other commuters aren't always willing to surrender their seats unless you're elderly, blind, or in a wheelchair. Prosthetic legs aren't recognizable under your pants. Accessibility to public places should be part of the first steps to make Pittsburgh more equitable, Paul said in a 2020 Pittsburgh Post-Gazette op-ed on the ADA's 30th anniversary entitled A Wake-Up Call to Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, he admitted, when the city considers the ADA, it is usually an afterthought. He wrote that, as the pace of change in Pittsburgh has increased, attention to the ADA has become scarce. I asked Paul if there was anything about the ADA he'd like to see changed. He said he'd like to see the ADA policed, or more specifically, He'd like state and local governments to act as if it's their job to enforce ADA rules and guidelines. Because the ADA states that it is their job. Yet, the burden to make public spaces accessible and hold businesses accountable often falls on the disabled themselves. I just want to get in the door, Paul wrote. I don't want to spend my life suing businesses.
Pittsburgh, Rick Seaback claimed in his 1992 documentary, Downtown Pittsburgh, is a walking city. This is relative, of course, and depends on whether you are able to walk without difficulty. Recent expansion of sidewalk dining due to COVID-19 restrictions on indoor dining has presented new challenges for the blind and those who use wheelchairs. Then there are those businesses who think they are complying with ADA guidelines and have modified their restaurants and stores to be more disability-friendly, only for disabled patrons to find that, in order to get to the accessible restrooms, they have to traverse a flight of stairs. This remains a challenge for me and is oftentimes a deterrent from patronizing a restaurant or store. In the Oscar-nominated 2020 documentary, Crip Camp, disability rights activist Judy Human said, If I have to feel thankful for an accessible bathroom, when am I ever going to be equal in the community? Paul pointed out that in Italy, as well as most of Europe, everything is accessible, and we're talking buildings that might be 500 years old or more. They even keep the accessible bathrooms locked, he said, so people without disabilities don't use them and mess them up. I asked Paul what he's most proud of, and he talked about the class action suit he brought against the Pittsburgh Housing Authority over the lack of accessible public housing. At the time, less than 5% of public housing apartments were accessible to people with mobility impairments. Thanks to Paul's efforts, 300 units became accessible. He also spearheaded a visitability program with Pittsburgh City Council, a two-step program that grants a $2,500 tax credit to city residents who make at least one doorway and bathroom in their homes accessible. Finding accessible housing is hard in Pittsburgh, Paul lamented. But even after you find it, you discover that everyone else is living in totally inaccessible homes, and so you're shut out of most family and social gatherings. Visitability has been a growing trend nationwide for the past 10 years. According to the Center for an Accessible Society, a social visit requires the ability for everyone who enters a home to be able to pass through doorways, to enter a bathroom, and to use a toilet. A house is visitable when it meets three basic requirements. At least one no-step entrance, doors and hallways wide enough to navigate through, a bathroom on the first floor big enough for a wheelchair user to enter and close the door. Once the Pittsburgh City Council approved the tax credit, the city's law department told Paul that they needed state authorization. After state authorization, Allegheny County Council passed a similar program. Any Allegheny County home made or built to be visitable is now eligible for a $2,500 tax credit, and a home within the city is eligible for an additional $2,500 credit for a total of $5,000. Visitability, Paul concluded, does not need to make the entire home accessible, but helps to break down barriers and promotes more social interaction. The tax credit, of course, does not force homeowners to make these changes, and with many older homes and apartment buildings in Pittsburgh, 
Barriers still abound. I live in a second-floor walk-up in Edgewood. The building, which houses four apartments, was built in 1932. Some of its features include hardwood floors, built-in bookshelves, and a decorative but no longer functional fireplace. There is an on-site washer and dryer, but they're in the basement, yet my landlords have been very accommodating, designating a parking space in front of my building for me. Even so, Paul said, that unfortunately, he wouldn't be able to accept a dinner invitation or be able to just stop by for a cup of coffee. Along with the 15 stairs you'd have to climb to reach my apartment, there are even a few steps just to get in the vestibule. The steps aren't steep, but if you're in a wheelchair or unsteady, it's nearly impossible. This was made painfully clear to me back in January 2019. My mother had recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer and decided to move in with me and my wife, Jenny. My mother was also adamant about not having any treatment. Instead, hospice would help make her comfortable. The problem was now how to get my mother into our apartment. She was unable to lift herself from a sitting position, let alone walk. We called the local fire department and they sent three EMTs to meet us. It was surreal. I felt as helpless standing there watching the EMTs lift my mother out of our car and strap her into a kind of stretcher dolly as if she were Hannibal Lecter. She looked so small, like a toy version of herself. After she was finally wheeled into our spare bedroom, I wondered if we'd have to call the EMTs if we wanted to take my mother somewhere. What if she wanted to go on a ride? As it happened, we wouldn't need the help of the EMTs again. My mother never left our apartment after that. She died just 18 days later. Along with the late Rachel Friend, who worked for the Mental Health Association of Allegheny County, Paul O'Hanlon has also fought for accessibility and voting for the disabled and those living in nursing and personal care facilities, as well as inmates in the county jail awaiting trial. With COVID-19 and the surge in mail-in ballots in the last presidential election, you might think, problem solved. This is not the case, as Paul was quick to point out. According to the census, people with disabilities make up the largest minority in the U.S. Take Pennsylvania, for example. 150,000 of its residents live in nursing homes or personal care homes on any given day. That's more people than the population of Allentown, Pennsylvania's third largest city. Every person in long-term care meets the definition of disability. So I figure we can't have the voting significance we deserve if we allow 150,000 of us to have no real way to vote, Paul said. Allegheny County has more people in these facilities than any other county in the state. At the very least, Paul argued, the state should require long-term care facilities to provide assistance in registering or updating registrations of residents, but it doesn't. Some facilities have adequate outside help from volunteers, but others do not. COVID has only made things consistently worse. 
Before the lockdown, volunteers went to hospitals and nursing facilities to help people register and to assist in voting. At the time of our interview, in the middle of the pandemic, this was no longer happening. We asked the state and long-term care facilities to proactively provide all residents with applications for mail-in ballots, Paul said. The state countered that by making online registration available, it was doing enough. Care facilities said they had enough to do just dealing with the pandemic and that providing their residents access for voting wasn't their job. To be fair, they did have their hands full dealing with a new and unpredictable virus that in February 2021 saw weekly death rates in the U.S. topping 23,000. This left many residents of nursing homes, long-term care facilities, and hospitals without the ability to cast their vote. Life in lockdown has made people rely more and more on computers, smartphones, and other electronic devices to help stay connected to loved ones and the greater world. You'd think the use of Zoom and Facebook, as well as other virtual apps, would bring greater accessibility to those with mobility issues, the sick, the disabled, and the elderly. I think of my mother, who, before her cancer diagnosis, spent most of her days and nights sitting in front of either her television or her laptop. These became her window into a world she saw less and less of in person. Her universe shrunk, as Paul said, referring to what happens to people when they get old, as well as her reach. It's paradoxical. So much more of the world is available online. Participation has never been easier, Paul told me. Yet that participation isn't always easy, especially for the disabled. In 2020, Allegheny County Council had a virtual meeting to discuss the use of less-than-lethal force by police on protesters in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. Since this meeting was online, people who normally were unable to attend due to age, sickness, or disability now had an opportunity not only to voice their opinions, but to hear and participate in debate with others. Things, of course, were not so simple. Officials shut down chat options, stifling debate, preventing citizens from voicing their concerns and communicating amongst themselves. This may have been intended as a way of moderating the general public and not designed to be one more barrier for the disabled, yet it only further illustrates Paul's point that accessibility is always an afterthought. This is also troubling when we consider that almost half the people who die at the hands of the police are disabled. A report published by the Ruderman Family Foundation, an organization that fosters inclusion in society for people with disabilities, proposes, while police interactions with minorities draw increasing scrutiny, disability and health considerations are still neglected in media coverage and law enforcement policy. Citing incidents from 2013 to 2015, historian David Perry, along with disability expert Lawrence Carter-Long, said that increasingly, police have become the designated responders to mental health calls. People with psychiatric disabilities, they state, are presumed to be dangerous to themselves and others, 
and police interactions. The report wades directly into the racial debates over policing, noting that while coverage of police brutality cases has understandably focused on race, that lens can also obscure how disability factors into police interactions. I have found that my disability gives me one ability I don't think I'd otherwise have, Paul emailed after our initial interview. When I worked in Homewood as a young, white, disabled legal services lawyer, I could see that I was granted a kind of acceptance in the community that I don't think I'd have had as an able-bodied white guy. Paul says he's learned that people who've experienced oppression can recognize others who've experienced it. I'd had a similar experience volunteering with various homeless organizations in Pittsburgh and New York. I felt accepted in a way I wouldn't have been if I weren't disabled. Paul O'Hanlon may well have overcome a great deal in his life, and it's obvious he's brought about a lot of good, but he still faces many personal challenges. The three of us, he wrote in another email, referring to him, his wife Lori, and their son Sam, have been living in a bubble over the past year, with almost no outside contact, primarily because of my vulnerability to severe COVID symptoms. Starkly, he added, we're at that age when we're looking at the odds of my dying before her and the possibility of a monstrous end-of-life medical bills. According to the CDC, as of September 2020, 61 million adults across all identities live with a disability and comprise the largest minority. One in three adults ages 18 to 44 have had an unmet health care need because of costs in the past year. The other thing we rarely think of is that all of us, at any time in our lives, through an accident or catastrophic illness, can become disabled. Most of us don't realize that disability impacts us all. In his novel, Blindness, about a worldwide pandemic that causes everyone to lose their sight, Jose Saramago writes, The difficult thing isn't living with other people, it's understanding them. While we cannot pass laws that require empathy and no amount of legislation will make a perfect world, we can at least become more aware of others and act locally to help bring about change that has reverberations globally. By imagining a perfect world, we can start by working to ensure that the cities and towns we live in have homes and apartments that are visitable, that restaurants and stores have accessible entrances, aisles, and bathrooms. Our perfect world should have accessible public transportation and schools and a greater accessibility to health care and human services. While it is true that we have come a long way, we still have miles to go. The experiences and talents of people with disabilities are waiting to be tapped, Paul O'Hanlon wrote in his 2020 Post-Gazette op-ed, as are the lessons from other more accessible cities. Without leadership and committed action, the city will not meet its promise of access for all. Paul O'Hanlon responds to a driving force for accessibility. 
I suspect it's because I was born with a disability that I developed a distinction I call being in the world. Being in the world begins when you step out your front door. Being in the world forces a moment-by-moment assessment of oneself and one's place in the world. Being in the world is an opportunity for chance encounters, new friendships, exploration, discovery. Being in the world draws you to life. Being in the world supports your health and vitality, your well-being. People with disabilities, people we call shut-ins, face a variety of barriers to their ability to be in the world. Less obviously, people who are poor, who are minorities, who are different, also face a variety of barriers to their ability to be in the world. There is a cost to being shut off from the world. It's a heavy cost, paid by the shut-in, by the person with the disability, by the world. Sometimes, the world doesn't know what it's missing. I do. I think my disability trained me from an early age to be attentive to barriers to being in the world. There's an unbearable lightness of being in the world. No sooner do you think you're there, but then the office party is moved to the second floor of the venue, and there's no elevator, and you realize that you haven't quite managed to be in the world. Most of my life has been a kind of Zen practice of freeing people up to be in the world. It's been the privilege of my life that I've had the opportunity to fight for things important to me.